Who could it be at such an hour on such a night? Oh, oh, come in. Come in. You'll catch your death. Yes, yes. Take off that wet coat and have a seat by the fire. Oh, the storm won't let up for hours. You might as well get comfortable. How lucky it is that you found us on such a night. I was just about to settle in with a good book. But that's a solitary exercise. And now I have company. It's not often that we have company at Paranormal Tower. In fact, it seems only on such stormy nights as this. Oh, yes, I see you heard the breeze. Well, I assure you we're alone here right now. Well, as alone as one ever is at Paranormal Tower. No, go ahead. Get comfortable. Let me light another candle. Ooh, the wind is beautiful enough. Welcome, traveler on the road, the unusual and the unknown. Settle yourself in for a while. It's the perfect night for a ghost story. Especially since ghosts haunt more than our streets and our dreams. Some linger in the very fabric of our collective psyche and inspire both art and madness. Ghosts born not only of tragedy but injustice seem to linger the longest. Perhaps because it's not only the soul of the lost, but the passion and the conscience, and even the guilt of all who feel the injustice that feeds the specter. There are ancient ghosts that rise and walk for centuries, millennia even. It occurs to me that close to tonight is the night of September 10th. And on September 10th to the 11th in Rome, just such a spirit walks. It's the specter of Beatrice Sedce, dead more than 400 years now, who walks the bridge that leads to Sant'Angelo Castle. Her story inspired the tears of millions, the righteous anger of tens of thousands, and poets, painters, novelists, and artists without number. Percy Bysshe wrote of her death in a play in five acts, but even his pen, mighty and revered though it was, was paltry compared to the power of her spirit and her tale. Beatrice Sanchi was a beautiful young noblewoman in the 16th century in Rome. Her family was both feared and respected, and was of ancient origin. Their home was a massive mansion built over the ruins of an ancient fortress. Their roots in Roma ran deep. More powerful than the emperors in the 16th century, of course, was the prince of the church, the Pope in the Vatican. And at this time, it was Pope Clementine. Beatrice's father was a man named Francesco Senci, and he was a nobleman by birth. But he had the temperament of someone far less refined. His rage, his anger, his violence often put him in the wrong spot with the Vatican and the Pope. His family's reputation suffered because of this. But as a man of high birth, he was afforded certain freedoms and allowed certain proclivities. Influential people, you no doubt know, 
can get away with terrible things. And the power structure, well, it protects them. And not because it approves, but because more than anything else, it fears a chink in its armor. Power can be built on the most tenuous and fluid of things. And therefore, it is always vulnerable. The family was wealthy and had been respected for centuries. Francesco's temper and character were well known, however, and he tarnished his family's name. The people of Rome knew his nature. It's hard to keep that secret. His family suffered at his hand, most specifically his beautiful daughter Beatrice. Francesco had been married before, and he had a son, Giancomo, and a daughter, Beatrice, from that marriage. After his first wife died and before he took his second wife, he had another small son. His second wife was Lucrezia. And they lived with Giancomo, Beatrice, and this small unnamed child. His cruelty was widely known and his family lived in fear of his silent temper. It was all business as usual, horrible business though it was until his attention turned more completely to his daughter, Beatrice. It would be dishonest here to allow Francesco the shield of alcoholism or the forgiveness of illness. He was depraved, he was disgusting, he was cruel, and those within his halls were utterly and completely under his thumb. As his daughter's beauty matured, his intentions toward her turned both criminal and depraved. Beatrice complained to the magistrates of the church. She asked for help from all the powers that be, and she was, of course, abandoned by them all. Rather than face any questions or consequences for his actions, Francesco closed up his house in Rome and sent his family off to the country estate. There he could visit at his leisure and be more assured that tales would not come traipsing back to the Vatican or to others. I reiterate here that Beatrice was used to the abuse and that the people of Rome knew his character, all the people of Rome, those in lofty positions and those who were called peasants. She made it known about the abuse, about his overtures towards her person. Her stepmother also lodged complaints they all fell on deaf ears as no one wanted to address them, certainly no one in power to address them. Were they disgusted? Certainly. But none wanted to challenge or allow a challenge to nobility, and so he was allowed to continue his evil and incestuous abuse, provided he did so out of the view of the authorities. See no evil, as they say. And so he did. He would beat and abuse and berate his family at will with no end or respite for them, and he would do worse. They turned to the magistrates, nothing. They turned to the church, nothing. Perhaps they turned even unto God. But it was left to themselves to solve their problems, and so they did in the only way that they knew. One night, the nobleman decided to return to his family in the country. No doubt he had partaken of wine. Perhaps he was in a frenzy. Perhaps he was bored. And perhaps it was just one more evening of evil debauchery that he was anticipating. 
I cannot say. It matters little. Today we might dissect his motives. We might autopsy his childhood to find the cause and the germ and the seed of his evil. But 400 years has given us enough security in never knowing that we might judge his actions on their own right without pausing to understand them. Here in the distance of time, we are free from the obligation to forgive or to explain. Suffice it for our purposes that there is nothing that could have been done to him that would ever condone or allow what he did unto others. And only that he had wealth and power and the will to abuse both that he could express his degeneracy. No, we will judge him on the face of it. And he was evil. He crossed over out of Rome and into infamy and eternity one evening. His family learned that he was coming to the villa. They knew, of course, that no quiet weekend awaited them. They had reached out to all the powers that might help them and found there was none to do so. And so they did what they could. They planned to end his horrors upon them. Beatrice and her stepmother, long the recipients of his horrible advances, with her brothers and several accomplices, planned to end the man. Upon his return to the villa, his wine was drugged. Beatrice's lover, a young apprentice blacksmith who wanted only to help his love, and his boss fashioned a long nail and stabbed the man through the head and throat, killing him in bloody fashion. The tribe of accomplices then proceeded to drop him from a balcony to make his death appear to be an accident, perhaps that of a man walking deeply in his cuts, swooning with heavy wine. It was hoped, perhaps even expected, that several days would pass ere he was noticed missing still, and yet his absence was noticed almost immediately. Mistakes had been made. The plan, in hindsight, was silly. It would never have worked. Beatrice had given a set of bloody sheets to a maid, and she had ordered them to be cleaned immediately, saying that they had been soiled naturally. The maid, knowing the habits and schedule of her mistress, suspected that this was a lie. And when the papal officers came, she handed them over as evidence. The villa, of course, was searched and the body of Senshi was found. The officers knew that this was no accident and immediately set about arresting those they believed responsible. First, they found the blacksmith and threatened him with torture unless he admitted his role. But he was a stalwart fellow, and he refused. Not only did he refuse, he escaped. However, so terrifying was the prospect of the papal magistrate that the man's own neighbors ordered his death and saw to it that he died, rather than face the officers of the pope. Beatrice's lover the young blacksmith's assistant, was tortured almost to his death. Finally, he gave in and admitted that he was involved, only to recant and then die from his wounds. Beatrice herself was also taken into custody. There's no doubt that the Senshi was murdered and that his family planned it. The issue even then was that it should never have reached that stage. He was an evil man doing evil things, and God's very representative on earth not only allowed him to continue, but avenged his death. The killers were to be condemned to die. The people of Rome, however, were outraged. 
This young girl trying only to protect herself from the unnatural depravities of her natural father, was she to forfeit her life? It was rank even to the lowest of station, not merely that she was beautiful, for beauty hides many stains, but that she had asked repeatedly for help and protection, protection that any child had a right to expect, and yet she had been repeatedly denied it. The injustice was just too much for some to bear. Now, the fact that the family's plan succeeded in that he did in fact die is true. And some perhaps found that it was surprising that he was dead, for he must have seemed a devil to many. But none were fooled by the silly trickery. Quickly, the powers that be went, were arresting Lucretia and Beatrice. Giancomo and the young boy, and of course all the other laborers who were involved. No one in all of Rome mourned Francesco Cenci. No one said prayers for his soul. No one believed that he would be brought to heaven. No one, it is certain, doubted that he dined in hell, for he had committed horrible crimes against more than just his family, crimes that had landed him in prison, but always his name and his family lineage had let him out. At least finally now, a sentence had been delivered that he could not escape from. But still that name and that family legacy would not let him die unavenged. The four Senshi were taken into custody and they were bound up and tortured until finally they acknowledged their part in his death. Some will say that it was unfair. Some will say that justice could not be so blind that it missed the mark entirely. But that would be naive, for justice was not served. No, instead, avarice and fear sat at the scales that day. It could not be allowed that a nobleman die at the hands of such a plot. Even such a man, even a man of such disgusting character, so depraved, his name and his title must be protected, lest the people, the peasants, the proletariat, lest they see that aristocracy is not powerful at all. No, his death must be paid for in blood, even if the blood of his innocent victims was the blood that would do the paying. The two women were held in one prison and the two young men in another. They were found guilty and ordered to death, but the cry of the people was so great that their executions were suspended for a time. This was unheard of. This was terrifying. More guards and more soldiers then needed to be brought in to protect against the angry throngs. This was not just. This was not right. These people had only sought to save themselves from a tyrant protected by the indecency of rank power. But eventually, the power had enough brute strength to feel safe to express itself. And then all four, including the child, were paraded across the Sant'Angelo Bridge to the place of executions. Along the way, they were prodded and pinched with pincers and knives, tortured, bled, abused. First came Lucrezia, the second wife, long abused and disrespected. She had already fainted and was strapped to the block 
when the march ended at the place of death. She was the first to lose her head. Beatrice was next. As a noblewoman, she was granted death by sword. She was forced to kneel at the block that was wet with the warm blood of her stepmother. Her hands were strapped to the block with a rope over the back of her neck to keep her from sudden movements that might make the executioner's job more difficult. There is no report of a second stroke, and so one must assume that her death was at least as swift as allowed by such barbariousness. Giancomo, the son of Francesco, abused and beaten, barely able to stand, well, he was brought forth next. He was not nearly so beloved as Beatrice, not seen as such a pathetic figure, for had he lived, he would have been a lord. Still, he was a victim of his terrible father, and his life was ended with a large, clumsy, wooden mallet which dashed his brains upon the stone of the bridge and then was used to smash him and quarter him so that all could see what happened to men who killed a noble. His young half-brother, the illegitimate son, was spared. If you can call witnessing your entire family murdered in the most violent and horrific way being spared, and then having your lands and your properties forfeited to the church, and, finally, sold for a pittance to the nephew of Pope Clementine. Ah, and Clementine, well, he hardly lived up to his name on this day, as he offered no clemency for the children of Sensi. Instead, he dealt a hand of violent and painful death to make all of Rome think twice before raising their hand to power. Yet, sometimes in the expression of power, what you truly show is your weakness, because perhaps it did backfire. Beatrice became a power in death that she may not have ever been in life. Her body was taken to the church of San Pietro in Montorio, and there she was laid to rest, her head atop her shoulders in an unmarked grave. But a grave within the church's sanctity. As one executed, she would have no effigy, but still the people knew and mourned her. And they remembered her. And they remembered how she cried out for justice and how those cries fell on the deaf ears of the powers that be. And she became a symbol of the abuse of power that the aristocracy consistently upheld. She inspired the peasants an outrage. She inspired a fight against the powerful and the cruel in the aristocracy. Her name became a mantra for change. And she became a calling card for the peasant class to remember the abuse, the lack of justice. Beatrice asked for help and was denied. And in the end, they took her life instead of doing what any Christian should have done. Now, the reports of her rising started immediately. And though it has now been 420 years since she was bound to that block, it is said that still, upon that anniversary, she still walks the bridge toward the place of her death. It is said that her specter is not a memory of the act. It's not a repetition. 
It's not a recording on the bridge, for when she walks, she holds her head beside her. And this is no echo of time. Beatrice has more to rebuke the world than just the terror of her life and death. For when Napoleon came to Italy, his soldiers were known to be bored and ravenous for any kind of treasure that they could find. It's said that they scoured the churchyard of San Pietro and Montorio, opening the tombs, seeking treasure. Finally, they opened the tomb of this tragic young woman and found no treasure, only the dusty bones of a young girl whose head had fallen to one side. And in their callous merriment, they paraded her throughout the churchyard and finally dispersed her bones, and they were never brought together again. And still poor Beatrice does not rest. Next week is September 10th. 421 years have passed. How many years must pass before the stains of such an atrocity fades away? Does it ever, should it? If I were in Rome, my friend, I would wait on that bridge and I would watch her cross it unblinkingly. The world today is in much turmoil and our own unkindness is becoming a stench we cannot ignore. We are also falling into the easy, cheap grip of false aristocracy, where we no longer are guided by what is right and just, but by what is allowed and what we can get away with. Beatrice, the beautiful, walks with her head by her side because the cruelty of power refused to do its duty and allow her to walk with her head held up. There are many stories like Beatrice's in our own little worlds. Stories of people punished merely for trying to survive. Are these not the ghosts and the specters and the spirits that we most need to see and hear right now, lest we forget and make more? If you are in Rome on September 10th, please take a moment to remember Beatrice. And if you are brave enough, stand watch while she marches across the bridge and into eternity. the storm seems to be letting up I guess it's time for you to be on your way well I've enjoyed passing a few moments with you here at Paranormal Tower next time perhaps you'll bring a tale for you to tell if you do have a tale to tell please feel free to leave it at my story at paranormaltower.com or call and leave it at 732-737-9212 if you've enjoyed your time at Paranormal Tower, please make sure to give us a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Make sure that you share us on social media. You can also reach us at, at Paranormal Tower on Instagram, at Paranormal Tower on Facebook, and at ParanormalNJ on Twitter.